This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us once again this week are TV critic Sonia Soraya. Hi. Uh, we have lost Richard this week, but you'll hear from him later in the episode because he interviewed Carrie Coon, the star of The Nest, which we will also be talking about, a new movie from IFC that's been out in theaters for a while now and is coming at last to VOD this week. And then we have a bunch of other stuff to talk about on TV and films. Uh, what a cornucopia of riches ahead of this very weird Thanksgiving uh, coming our way. But I feel like first we should start with uh, the conclusion to a story that started on this podcast well over a year ago when I went to the Toronto Film Festival and saw a movie and told Joanna that she would love it. And I was like, oh, great, you'll see it in a few months. And here we are over a year later. And Joanna, you finally saw the personal history of David Copperfield. Oh, my gosh. It was like <laughs> whenever I get a tailor-made for me recommendation from Kitty Rich out of uh, Toronto, I'm like, it's always a hit, a palpable hit. And I've been dying to see this movie for over a year, uh, patiently waiting. And yeah, I, I finally got yesterday, I got a screener link for David Copperfield, but I believe it's streaming this week as well. So folks at home listening don't have to wait a year, over a year to watch it. Uh, <laughs> they can watch it now. Um, this is incredible. I love this so much. And it's so great that it came the same day that there is that like weird story about how the CW wants to sexify Jane Austen. <laughs> the, I, the story like Taylor made to make you mad. <laughs> and I got really mad about it. And I was like, you can do lively feeling updates to classic literature without, you know, sort of, I don't know, I, I'm prejudging these CW attempts. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is, this uh, version of David Copperfield starring Dev Patel just feels like really lively. It's directed by... Armando Iannucci, produced by, screenplay by, co-written by. So, you know, it's got that, like, really sharp wit. You know, if you like his shows like Veeper, In the Loop, or all that sort of stuff, or if you like, uh, or In the Thick of It, or if you like uh, Death of Stalin, which was the previous film that he was involved with, 
you're just going to love this. It's just it's zippy. Uh, it's got like so many of his, fa- you know, Hugh Laurie's here, Peter Capaldi's here, like all your Ianushi faves are here. And it's just fun. And I love Dickens generally, but this just makes it feel that much livelier. Tilda Swinton is incredible as this great Dickensian character. Uh, and uh, and they found a way to make Ben Wishaw sexually unappealing, which I did not think was physically possible. So, you know, <laughs> hats off. Doff of the top hat to uh, the personal history of David Copperfield. Yeah, Ben Wishaw is playing one of the most like phenomenally named villains of all of literature, Uriah Heep, and he just really has such a Uriah Heep vibe about him, like a little like miniature hunchback kind of like skulking in the background of all these scenes. And a greasy bowl cut. Like, I don't know oh, how, you, yeah. how you do that to Ben Wishaw, but they did it. I thinking about the death of Stalin, which I really loved, but I think a lot of people found it like really cynical and really dark, which it definitely was. Like it's about all these scheming like Soviets trying to kill each other. Um, and David Copperfield has like it's not fully uncynical. It's a you know it's like a Dickens novel about awful people doing awful things, but it's got this like sprightly hope about it too. And you know it ends in a way that you kind of want every movie to end, where like all your favorite characters come back and hang out. Um, and it's it's so it's cheerful in this way that I don't think a lot of Ianucci's other work is. And Dev Patel is such a big part of that. He's just such like a bright-eyed like hero that you want to follow throughout this whole weird world. There's also a lot of really fun and inventive stagecraft. Um, mm-hmm. You know the way in which uh, you are never forgetting the narrator of you know that David Copperfield himself is narrating the story, and there's just like a lot of interesting creative ways to incorporate that and retelling of events you've already seen and stuff like that. So I just, I found it so creative, so fun, so funny, so enjoyable. So, you know, if you, if you have been, you know, felt like Charles Dickens stories were not for you in the past, this might be a take on it that you might enjoy. And if you do love Dickens, I think you'll really love this story because even though it is like, injected with some Ianucciisms, it's it's still very much the text. So um yeah, I'm I'm a huge I'm I'm in love with this movie. It's maybe my favorite movie I've seen I in a, in a long, long time. So, oh, yeah. I love being so right, eh? Yes. And <laughs> And I want to say something that, like, it's become, like, a little obvious about the movie, but it came up at the Q&A for this movie when it premiered at, at Toronto, where basically someone was like, why did you decide to cast all of, like, to basically do race blind casting? Like, to have Dev Patel, who's Indian, as the main character, and they, like, I can't remember how it all adds up, but, like, you have, like, a black woman playing the mother of a white child, and it just kind of, like, isn't relevant. And Hugh Laurie basically responded on stage being like, why would you ask that question? Which I think is, like, maybe a little curt, because that's still a somewhat radical thing to do in a movie. But it does just really add to this feeling of it being like a like come one come all everyone be part of this big adventure story that we're telling and I, I think that's a big aspect of it that adds to it's 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 I'm, vibe. yeah I'm by no means an expert in this at all but I I think that it's funny because I've had conversations with people uh, um other like American TV viewers about this and maybe Sonia you have any thoughts on this but it's something that I've noticed that the UK has been miles ahead on hmm. um especially uk stage like the theater they do race blind casting all the time where they're just sort of like who cares why do you care and like we're just gonna like put the put whoever we think is great for this role in this role and we're not gonna care that like as in david copperdale like benedict wong is the father of like a young black woman like it doesn't matter who cares and so i, I like i think hugh laurie's response is a response to like this is what we've been doing and american audiences or maybe Canadian audiences are like, this still feels innovative to us. So mm-hmm. um, I just think that's, you know, I don't know. Sonia, Sonia, have you observed that with UK TV at all or, or any thoughts on that? 
I haven't really, but I'm interested in the idea of doing it with Dickens. I mean, I'm very curious about this, about this project based on everything you guys have said. But I do think that the UK stage is sort of light years ahead of us in terms of like the stuff that it's thought about. Like, I feel like yeah. it's like such a um, innovative and and it's a small community that has like done a lot of work, I feel. But yeah, that's a really interesting point, Joanna. I was thinking about this also with a movie I have not seen all of, so I don't want to weigh in on it too much, but the Netflix special Jingle Jangle. Have you guys watched any of this? I watched no, it. It kind of like came out of nowhere, but I watched it with my kid for a little while. And it's just like set in this very familiar like Christmas carol-y like faux Dickensian fantasy world where like there's magical toys, but there's also people wearing hoop skirts and the main characters are black. And you're like, it's a made up world. Like, why haven't we ever had like Dickensian Christmas Carol with black characters? Like, there's no reason not to. Um, so I, I do feel like some of that attitude is like finally taking I mean that's why that's why all of the Game of Thrones casting stuff was nonsense because you're like you've got dragons so you can just unclench about how people need to look like a certain way you know what I mean so yeah 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 Game of Thrones had to get that all of its systems so we could all see how what a phony stance it was and and move on from there um well Sonia you want to talk about something else that I believe only you have seen so I need you to tell me all about HBO Max's I Hate Susie and uh and honestly what it is I'm kind of starting from nothing here I think Joanna saw some of it too, right? Yeah, I watched all of it. Oh, okay. All right. Then both of you can explain it to me. (laughs) Great. Well, um, I Hate Susie is a half-hour series created by Lucy Preble and Billy Piper. And it's about a a woman, an an actor, who her, her cloud is hacked and compromising photos of her are leaked to the tabloid press. And, or I guess they're just leaked online and the tabloid press sort of pick it up. And um, her life sort of begins to implode. Um, It just like begins, you know, the first episode, it happens. And um, each episode is named after like one stage of her process. So the first one is shock. And then there's a few down there, shame and there's bargaining. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I know Billy Piper from Penny Dreadful. And she's a remarkable performer. Um, I don't know Lucy Preble's work. They co-wrote a couple of episodes, but Lucy Preble is behind the scenes. And she wrote on her own a few episodes. But it has a lot in common, I think, with I May Destroy You, also a British series, also half hour, and also sort of begins with this like sort of traumatic experience um, happening to the main character, played by Michaela Cole. But I think I Hate Susie is, it's more light- hearted a little bit it's a little bit less about unpacking this trauma and a little bit more about how this character has like found herself in this situation that is totally exploitative of her but is also like revealing a lot of decisions and mistakes that she's made up until this point that she needs to like start to deal with so there's a way in which it's like very funny and kind of droll but then it's also like very immersive in her experience the first episode is so I'm trying to think of the best way to describe like panic it. inducing claustrophobic it's so it's oh so <laughs> stressful it's so because stressful. she she finds out this news as a team is coming to her house to do a photo shoot of her 
And she can't articulate what has happened and she can't talk about it with her husband. And the reason, as it turns out, is because they're not with her husband. She's been having an affair. And you find that out very quickly because, you know, in that episode. But she's trying to like hide, like she unplugs the modem and like hides the laptop. And she keeps telling her husband that like her phone's not working and she doesn't understand why. And then these people all just like descend on her house and they're asking her to do stuff. And she's in just shock. She's just horrified, just experiencing like every emotion. And you're seeing it on her face. And they're asking her to do the most ridiculous things. They're like, we're going to bring in dogs. She's like, I'm allergic to dogs. They're like, that's okay. We we cleared it with your agent. <laughs> and then like bring in like a, f- a fur coat. They're like, we're going to put fake blood on the fur coat because we don't think this is edgy enough. It's like manifest. Her life is spiraling out of control. It's re- I just found it really interesting. Tell me, Joanna, what did you think of it? Yeah, so I know Billy Piper best from Doctor Who. She's like one of the, you know, most beloved companions that they ever did on like one when they rebooted Doctor Who in the early aughts. Like she was the companion, the Doctor Who girl. Um, but before that, she had she was already well known to the UK audience because she was like a, a pop star. She was a teen pop star. Then she got this role on Doctor Who. Then she sort of blew up, you know, as this like wholesome ish traveling the universe pert, sassy, blonde or whatever. And then she sort of blew up that image by doing Secret Diary of a Call Girl in 2007, uh, where she played, you know, a sex worker. And Lucy Preble was the creator of that show. And so she sort of like, it was just an interesting direction for her to take her career. She did some stage work. She did, uh, I thought she was great in Penny Dreadful, which you mentioned, Sonia. And so what's interesting, but what's interesting is like, you know, she's great and Penny Dreadful, but it's been a while since Billy Piper was like the hit of the UK, which she was in Doctor Who, which she was as a teen pop star. And uh, this show very much, is, this show feels so personal. It very much explores what we do to celebrity, the rise and fall of celebrity. Like this character that she's playing is past the peak of her stardom and sort of trying to claw her career back in certain ways. There is an episode where she goes to a sci-fi convention and has to like try on her like costume from the show that she was on and stuff like that. It's like very Doctor Who, like absolutely. And so it's, uh, you know, it just feels incredibly personal. Lucy Preble obviously knows like Billy Piper very well from working on another series with her. Lucy Preble also worked on Succession. So she's like, you know, she's oh. she's just got this like great sharp wit about her and what they are unafraid to do and what I think is really cool is if Billy Piper's going to make this like quasi out of back because like as it's revealed that her husband is not a peach uh, is how I would describe him and Billy (laughs) Billy Piper had a very 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 public messy divorce from a not a peach dude and so I just think there's a lot of her own life packed into this you know and then Michaela Cole I I really love that you bring up um, I made a story because obviously Michaela Cole did something very similar and what I admire about both of these pieces is that they are unafraid to make these women that they are playing their avatars wholly unlikable often you know what I mean and you're like you're rooting for them or I find myself rooting for them obviously but like but sometimes they challenge you in that. And I think that that is like something that's really interesting with a lot of tel- female fronted, female created television that we've gotten the past couple of years where they're just sort of like, I hate to bring up the specter of like Lena Dunham, but like just this idea of like, it's okay for women to 
be awful sometimes and they're still humans and they still deserve your empathy and your interest. And that's something that I think this show does really, really well. It made me think of Fleabag in the way that she's, right. uh, yeah. that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is like so ruthless with her own insecurities and flaws. And I think like the show is called I Hate Susie. Like it really begins with this sort of like Susie is the problem in her right. own life. Right. I totally agree about her husband. Um, there's this one point where he's like, oh, you're really acting like you're the victim in this scenario. And I was like, she is a victim. She's been yeah. a victim of this like huge invasion of privacy. Her like personal life is being splashed all over the internet and I think that's one of the things that's so interesting is like the show is very uh, in a way it's very subtle like no one is articulating misogyny no one is articulating like this is what women celebrities have to deal with in particular or like this is what it means to like be a woman balancing your marriage and your career but it really comes through in Billy's performance and I think it kind of um, I find it a little difficult to watch like like I've I've been sort of pacing myself so I haven't finished the season because um, the fourth episode shame I like started watching it and I was like this is a l- I gotta I think I gotta take a break right. <laughs> this, is, this is like a big episode yeah. Um, really yeah I have I want to say also that her co-star is her best friend and her manager yeah. who's played by Leela Farzad she's and great. she's great and actually this kind of connects back to your thought about race blind casting. I do think that there's some like, it's a very diverse cast and I appreciated that. It just felt really fresh to me. So overall, I'm really excited to finish the series and I think people are going to like it. It debuts uh, on the 19th. So just in a couple of days. Yeah. And and like, and HBO Max is kind of interesting because, you know, it's been an interesting opportunity for HBO Obviously, there's this mandate from Warner Media for HBO to have more content, right? Like in the era of Netflix, you can no longer just have like two shows on Sunday night that people are watching. Like we need to have more content. And you see that reflected on HBO proper's like lineup. But HBO Max is this opportunity to sort of like, you know, what's the difference if you're streaming it all online? You don't maybe know the difference between HBO Max and HBO and it allows them to sort of explore something. I could see this being something that would have just aired on HBO in the past, but I think that HBO Max is doing is doing like a modified version of Netflix's throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks in that like I think the quality is higher of what HBO Max is doing, but there still is just like so much more. This is a this is a UK import. It aired um already in the UK. The reason I knew about it in the first place is you guys remember um early this year W magazine did this portfolio where TV actors dressed up as like the show that they were obsessively watching characters from the show that they were obsessively watching yeah yeah yeah. and Jodie Comer dressed up as Billy Piper from I Hate <laughs> Susie and I was like what is that you know with like mascara running down her face and I was like what is this uh yeah. Billy Piper okay so um that's how it came on my, my radar but yeah I just I really hope people watch it people like it I think it's really worth worth the time so yeah one of my favorite things about it is that uh there's like a Disney contract that she's trying to like salvage throughout the entire thing and the Disney contract is to play an aging princess yeah (laughs) it's really brutal it's it's very good it's very good it's very sharp it's very sharp and like you can yeah you you're like oh this this woman writes on succession I see I see yeah Uh, how do you guys feel about this as uh, if you're still stressed from the election? Like, should we wait a little while to be able to handle it or is it uh, distracting enough? 
I think it's, I mean, like, I, I did feel that, like, the first episode was really stressful, but it's, like, stressful in a kind of fun, propulsive way, because um, mm-hmm. it's, like, so juicy. There's so many, like, awful publicist-type characters, not, not her best friend, but, like, you know, photo shoot Hollywood type characters like crammed in a cottage and um and and being kind of awful and that's fun to watch. Um it's just shot in a way that's meant to make you feel the anxiety of the All of her anxiety, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's really removed, I would say. Like it could be like four years ago or so, and you wouldn't necessarily feel the difference. So it doesn't it doesn't have that sense of like the world I think, I think crashing in on us. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's actually also like you get to experience her anxiety, so you don't have to feel your anxiety. <laughs> okay, okay, that's kind of how I feel about the crown. Actually, it's just like watching oh, yeah. like other people's like tough lives, so I don't have to think about my own. Mm-hmm. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mm-hmm. Actually, Sonia, I wanted to talk to you about we talked about the crown last week and I wanted you to come in with your hot take. I still haven't finished the current season, but, you know, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with the history here. Um, mm-hmm. Did you as like as we can tell from the traffic on VF.com, like all anybody wants to read about is the crown, apparently. <laughs> so uh, what uh, what are your crown thoughts for this season? Man, I am I'm loving how excited people are by the season. Um, I mean, I, I do think it's, it's Diana's story continues to have I mean have this timeless fairy tale gone wrong quality that draws people like a magnet I really enjoyed this season um I was pretty I was pretty wrapped when I was watching it and um I think that one of the things that really worked for me is that they have they're really anchored in both Charles and Diana's relationship which like starts in the very first episode because they meet for the first time in the first episode and then like very short courtship very quick engagement and then they're married and then um at the same time Thatcher's rule which starts in 1979 and the philosophy that she had and how she clashes with the queen and the entire transformative decade of the 80s in Great Britain, I think that really worked well. I think that 
there was a lot of inspiration there. Like usually in a crown season, I'm like, oh, that's the episode they didn't really know what to do with, but they needed 10 episodes like for this season. <laughs> but uh, in this season, I really didn't feel that. If anything, like I thought the, the quote unquote, like most random episode is the Princess Margaret episode. And I was like, and you know, it's like Helena Bottom Carter doing things. I'm like, this isn't a bad episode. This is, a, this is great. This is just, it's a little bit off to the side. Um, so I I loved it, yeah. And what I'm really enjoying now, as I was talking to you about Katie, is that everyone is like picking sides again in the Charles <laughs> the Charles Camilla Diana triangle. And I think at just as it was in real life, the audiences the audience is very primed. I think part of it is Emma Corrin's performance, and part of it is just her circumstances to be like, oh, like Diana is the victim here, Charles is the monster, Camilla is this, you know, cynical other woman, and really turns the whole thing into kind of like a, a fairy tale, like black and white. Uh, here's the villain, here's yeah. the hero. And I'm interested in the complications there because I do think they do a great job in the season. I really think Josh O'Connor like did a great job in this season of showing the whole spectrum of Charles's emotions, like because he is this like poor little priggish boy who can't really express his feelings and is in this very repressed family that has all of this pressure and every piece of resentment and frustration and anger that he feels about his entire life ends up being channeled into this marriage and I think that like on one hand you really you pity him and you have pitied him ever seeing him you know ever since he was a baby and at the same time like Josh O'Connor like really commits to the anger like the spit flying from his face as he's like saying the most horrible like disdainful cruel thing to Diana about her intelligence or how she's shaming the family or how she's like shaming him, like making him look bad. And I really, um, I don't know, I was really drawn into their, to their marriage and I found it upsetting. Like, you know, it's difficult to be in the, in that marriage and you're in it, you're in it with them for those 10 hours. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I haven't gotten to that part of the season yet, but obviously I know how the, the story goes. Um, but I feel like the crown has laid so much groundwork with Josh O'Connor and the, and the story about, about pitying Charles, like so much of Josh O'Connor's first season about watching him, like try to be the Prince of Wales. And when you see him as a little kid at this horrible boarding school and in this season, like he shows off his garden to his mom and she like can't appreciate it while she lets Andrew like do whatever the fuck he wants which is like this dynamic you see play out and then you fast forward in real life and like Charles and Camilla now like as you know I edit our vanity section so I follow the royals like really closely and I think Charles and Camilla just really proved that they were in love from the beginning and then they got married in 2005 and they have been this like really charming couple and have like thrown themselves into all the work like they have done so much to redeem the kind of horrible mess that happened with their lives in the 80s and I just I feel so much sympathy for him and I get that the crown is going to really complicate that but I just like I need to still be team Charles and I hate for Charles and Camilla is one of my favorite things about uh, I just like I'm just so happy that they have each other and that they knew they were in love in the early 70s and for all these terrible reasons that didn't really have anything to do with them. They weren't allowed to be together and now they are and they seem to be making the most of it and I'm happy for them. It's so interesting because like, uh, you know, I was watching some people who know way more about all of this than I do and some of them are like the crown is too being too soft on Charles and Camilla and Charles and Elizabeth but that's sort of Peter Morgan's thing is that he's like you know in the tank for the royals and then some people are like the people are being too soft on Diana like she was kind of um, she was a mess you know an, 
she was a messy person, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> stuff like that. So it's, you know, as Sonia said, the debate rages on. Um, and I think what's just true is that everyone, Katie, I think you summed it up really well on Twitter last night where you're like, this is hurt people, hurt people sort of times. Uh, yeah, it's like over watching. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think having the longer context of the crown, having seen what Elizabeth went through to get here is so interesting if you think about Claire Foy's version of Elizabeth and like you know the infidelities that she just had to like stiff up her lip through and she's like this is just what you do like yeah your husband's gonna stray and that's what I did and look we're fine so just do as I did it's gonna be fine (laughs) and you're like no babe no 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 you know so yeah it's such a referendum on the I that, that's one of the things I really appreciated about this season is that you know Peter Morgan I would say just interpreting the last few seasons he loves the queen like he he is really on her side I would say gen, generally a monarchist but in this season there is a lot of I think finely tuned criticism of why do these people live like this? What, like, what are they gaining out of suppressing their their natural impulses um, in the ways that they do? And it comes out with the Thatcher thing too, where like the queen is critical of Thatcher's policy in South Africa in one episode, but she like can't say that she is because like that's the role of the sovereign is like you don't criticize the prime minister. And there's this like really interesting tension of like what are these people for that I think the crown has always been trying to answer and always been trying to address. But it really comes out in this season because Diana is on one hand like she's the opposite of everything that they stand, you know, everything that they are. Like she's super emotional, super sensitive, like she wears her heart on her sleeve, like the entire press knows all of her feelings, like almost before she does. She's not like, this is like this like really interesting tension, is that she's like a really uh, committed mother. She's very involved with her children and all of the other royals tend to sort of farm them out to nannies or like, you know, kind of have like much more distance. Um, You know, we've seen Charles and, and his mother, Elizabeth, like the sort of coldness between them, like she's not really like a hugger. She doesn't talk about feelings, but like Diana's like in the pool with William and Harry, like, you know, play like horsing around with them. Like she's just a very different kind of person. It seems like she's from a different generation, a different world entirely. And at the same time, she made the monarchy so much more relevant and high profile than it had been before for so many hundreds of millions of people because she was doing this work where she like, she goes to America and hugs an AIDS patient. She like, she's willing to go to, uh, she's willing to travel. She's willing to bring the press with her. So I love, I love that they explore that tension. I wish they got a little bit more into, like, they they sort of make Diana almost maddeningly naive, that she's just, like, accidentally, like, really brilliant with the press. And I'd be so curious, maybe we'll get this with the Elizabeth Debicki season, to... I. Do you think that Diana really just like innately had this sense of fashion and style and how to talk to the press? Or did she think about it? Did she wonder to herself, like, what was the right outfit to wear 
before, you know, going out to the Royal Ballet with Charles and dancing on stage to Uptown Girl. I found that kind of interest. I'm like kind of interested in, in yeah. how they're going to develop her character. But in this season, she's very she's very naive. She's very she's like intuitively really brilliant. But uh, when it comes to certain things, but just the fact that she thinks that Charles is going to love her is this heartbreaking naivete that I, I come back to because he's entering this entire thing like a contract like a like a business deal and she's the only person who doesn't see that like everyone else like he's like having he's like giving gifts to Camilla the day before the wedding like he is in love with another woman but he can't quite say it to Diana so bluntly and Diana can't quite read between the lines and it's so sad it's like it's depressing man I, I do hope uh, that the next season uh, with Elizabeth Debicki, like, because Emma Corrin is, is, you know, she's such like a uh, an unsettling dead ringer for Diana, and she is doing uh-huh. something like very interesting with this role. But like, I am interested in seeing the Debicki season because I do think that Diana, or I, I know that Diana was like actually a much more calculating, and I don't mean that in a bad way, had a more calculating uh, relationship with the media that she knew how to use it to. She was very savvy. Uh, yeah. yeah, savvy. Savvy is a better word. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And then yeah. like, and. What Diana understood that the royals didn't was this idea of celebrity and Mm -hmm. that they were like, that's not our function. And she's Mm -hmm. like, are you kidding? Of course it's your function. Mm -hmm. Um, You know what I mean? And so they didn't understand what she did innately understand, which is this idea of like being a a figurehead and and how that can do good in this world, as you say, like highlighting certain causes and and lending your celebrity to certain causes and stuff like that. But but that it it requires a degree of whether feigned or not emotional openness that, you know, the royals were taught, you know, in the Claire Foy Elizabeth seasons, we understand the royals were taught stiff upper lip, like keep it buttoned up. We do not do X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? It's what it's what the Margaret character has been chafing against uh, this yeah. whole time. It's remarkable to see Margaret turn a cold shoulder on Diana when there's Ugh. so much of her in it. You know what I mean? So like mm-hmm. there's just no quarter for Diana amongst these royals when you know that like Philip and Margaret have like things in their past that would help them understand her or even Charles. So, you know, it's just it's it's it, you know, and it's like, well, you know, not to. It's like watching a slow motion train wreck, you know, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. it's good television. Good television. What I loved about the very last, the last episode, this isn't exactly a spoiler. It's just sort of like in her face, in Emma Corrin's face. You sort of see the transition from Diana being like, I'm trying to make this work. Diana saying to herself, okay, we're going to war. Like, this is like now we mean business. And I, I enjoyed that. I, I enjoy. Yeah. The nineties uh, is entirely about Diana's war against the Royals. So right. <laughs> you see how right, it's right, going. Right. It's, it's very exciting to feel like that resolution that like sort of resolute will in her. I will say on the other gossip note is that I was desperate for more Andrew and Fergie. Um, and we get just a little bit of Sarah Ferguson in the background because Andrew's wedding happens. And I really loved that Charles comes in on the morning of Andrew's wedding delivers the sickest burn unbelievable (laughs) about how no one cares about the wedding of a man who's unlikely to ever be king and then just like promptly leaves um but I I liked that because 
Andrew is uh, back in the news, you know, or has been back in the news because of the Jeffrey Epstein story. And like the relationship between him and the queen was explored a little bit. And I, I was just, uh, I was like sort of riveted by every little appearance that they had. Um, and I remember Fergie being a big tabloid star as well, a tabloid obsession as well. At that point, her weight, her weight loss and weight gain was like this constant obsession. Just the fact that she was redheaded seemed to like really piss people off. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm hoping for more of, of that story eventually. Yeah, I think it's tricky to do Fergie because Andrew is such a horrible figure now. And like it's it's hard to make him a character because of what he's been accused of. Um, so I hope she doesn't get short shrift because, yeah, Fergie is fascinating. And she and Diana were so inextricably connected. I think Fergie and Andrew also get divorced around 1992. So that might be something to to expect in the next season. We should we should talk about the last few things we want to talk about. We're sticking around Britain. So this is a very, um, <laughs> very Britain friendly episode. Um, but so we we've all watched some of Small Acts, which is the Steve McQueen um, mini series series of films. It's a very Anthology. weird hype. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I love it's coming. It's, to- it's slap with a label that says on at least on my screen it said a series of films. Right. Like, yeah. right. like this is what what Steve McQueen wants to call this a series of films, but it, it feels is, like it's a mini series. So very confusing. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's coming to Amazon. It's premiering week by week. So I've watched the first two films in the series, which is Mangrove, which I believe is coming this week, and then Lover's Rock, which is coming the week after. Um, Joanna, I think you've seen, too, the third one, Red, White, and Blue. Um, yes. And all three of them were part of the New York Film Festival a few months ago. So if you've heard about this before, that's why. There's a lot to get into in this. It is a very different version of Britain um, than what we're talking about in The Crown. Yes. And yeah. uh, Sonia, you're doing you're reviewing part of it, at least. So do you, do you want to kick off talking about uh, what to make of these? Yeah, well, I mean, that that's actually one of the things that's interesting, and Richard and I have been talking about it, which is like, on one hand, you're reviewing each one, and then on the other hand, you are kind of reviewing how they all fit together, because that does seem to be very important to McQueen's vision. So I've, I've also watched Mangrove and Lover's Rock, and I'm going to be writing about Lover's Rock next week, and um, I adored both of them. I mean, I just, I feel... You know, Steve McQueen is an incredible filmmaker at the top of his game, and so they're they're all about the West Indian community in Britain. Th- these two were in London. Mangrove takes place in the 60s, uh, the late 60s, and Lover's Rock is uh, in the 80s. And he's clearly so, I, I mean, this is the community he belongs to. It's such a loving, intimate portrait um, in, in both. But it, the stories are so different because Mangrove is essentially, a, it's a courtroom drama. It's about the Mangrove Nine, who were a group of West Indian activists um, and business owners who were put on trial after um, a protest turned violent in the Notting Hill neighborhood of London. Um, True story. And uh, Lover's Rock is a completely fictional story of a house party that happens one night in the 80s in this, it seems like the same neighborhood. And I love how they work together. I love, I mean, tell me tell me what you guys think, but I found that I really felt each sort of enriched the other, that there was just this sense of like the continuity of, of this culture and Lover's Rock because it happens after the, the events of Mangrove. So Mang- in Mangrove, what you see is that this community is like incredibly violently policed by a pretty a very racist uh uh precinct and they're struggling to just live in a normal way 
Mangrove is the name of the restaurant that the main character owns. Um, the character's name is Frank Critchlow, and the actor is Sean Peters. Um, but Letitia Wright is also in this uh, in this movie. Uh, she's one of the Mangrove Nine, um, and his restaurant keeps being raided by these by these racist cops. Um, they're just smashing things up. They keep accusing him of housing whores, housing gambling, um, and he's like trying to create a restaurant for the community. They they mock him for for having a restaurant for the community for having spicy food it's this incredible cultural tension and so much of their day-to-day is informed by the struggle and then lover's rock is this kind of beautiful it's like a it's like a vibe the whole yeah, it's like a vibe, it is a vibe. Exactly. <laughs> I, was like, I was like i was like this is just a mood piece this is a vibe you know what yeah. I mean? where like, it's you, just this yeah. It's just this part, this dance party um, that is happening in someone's apartment. They move out all the furniture, move in the equipment, and you just sort of like feel the mood change in that room over the course of the evening. Sometimes it's very romantic, and then there's one point where a lot of men in the room, uh, a lot of men end up being in the room at the same time and feel a lot of passion for their identity, and they're like throwing up fists and. It's like a mosh pit, but the West Indian British version of a mosh pit. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Apparently, Lover's Rock is the name of a genre of reggae, which I didn't know. And so that's what like they're playing there at the time. So I I just I just really enjoyed both of them. I think Mangrove also has this like obvious parallel to Trial of the Chicago 7. They even have the numbers. It's really crazy. (laughs) And an awful judge. uh, And an awful. Right. Right. Awful judge, racist police. Yeah. So it really fascinating i think they're both very like in the in the conversation um yeah so tell me what you guys thought yeah i mean i loved mangrove i loved it i um i did get those trial chicago seven vibes but like i just i love a a, like a courtroom drama and like this is this is more than that but like it has a lot of that in there and and so I really, really loved that. I loved the actors and the performers and the and the stress in this. Letitia Wright is so good. Maliki Kirby, who plays like the other basically two of the Mangrove Nine decide to defend themselves and he plays the other person uh, who defends himself and uh he uh, he was in, he was a star of uh the roots miniseries that they did a couple of years ago which i didn't oh, yeah. love oh. but like he was great in it and he and letitia wright and john boyega all come from the same acting school um it's called the identity school of acting which opened i think about a decade ago in london and it's just it was a it's been a resource for non-white actors um, and white actors, but like with an emphasis on non-white actors to really like be able to have a, you know, prestigious acting school experience in a way that maybe the larger acting school community in the UK uh, may not be able to provide. And something that I think is fascinating, sorry, this is like slightly off point. Something that is really fascinating is that John Boyega, Letitia Wright and Maliki Kirby and a few couple other notable alums have started an LA branch of it. And I think they've started their own production company as well so I think it's just really fascinating for Steve McQueen to have I mean you might have tapped them anyway because you know these are Marvel and Star Wars stars and stuff like that but like you know like that that he tapped this this particular vein of I was trying to see if anyone else in the cast I haven't found any yet were also alums from the school but like to tap this vein of talent to tell these stories it reminded me also of you know 
the history that we're learning uh, in the U.S. about learning sounds makes us sound so dumb, but we often are um, about like the Tulsa riots through Lovecraft Country and Watchmen and stuff like that. So it's like Steve McQueen's like, here's a history of the UK that you don't get to see often. Um, and of Notting you, Hill, like the yeah, neighborhood yeah. that like for most Americans, we think of Julia Roberts. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and like, yeah, there's a sequence in Mangrove that's just a series of a, f- a freeway being built uh, a, yeah. uh, and you're you're sort of like oh, yeah. what is that and you're like oh it's gentrification coming yeah. to this neighborhood and yeah. um and like on the mangrove the story of mangrove um which I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't read the wikipedia page um <laughs> is uh, or learned about it um in a, from a more valuable source that episode or that movie <laughs> that movie stops before what actually happens to the mangrove happens i just learned the other day that like PG&E actually won the Aaron Brockovich case in appeals and that movie stops when you think that like anyway it stops on a happier ending than what actually happened to the mangrove because of gentrification came and like just really tore through that neighborhood um but yeah let me just quickly mention that um the third the third one which I watched last night which is Red White and Blue which is John Boyega's uh installment in this and he plays a young man I think it's set in, also in like the maybe the late 80s where he plays a young man who sees his father be brutalized by a couple white cops and decides to join the force to um, sort of a, a tackle systemic racism from inside the police force. Um, he's based on a real uh, person, Leroy Logan, or he's playing a real person, Leroy Logan, who's who is still a, an extremely respected member of you know the police force in the UK and did has done so much work um, as an activist from inside the force to try to root out some of the behavior that we see in Mangrove, you know, from these white cops and obviously has a terrible time of it. And and what Steve McQueen does in that installment is really effectively weaponize this, I mean, entirely justifiable rage through John Boyega, which, you know, he plays like a, like, you know, just like a nice, lovely man has, you know, a a baby on the way sort of thing, but like has this rage in him, um, uh, his frustration about the system and how hard it is to even from inside it affect any change. And, um, you know, we've been, we've seen John Boyega as a, as a, as a person, as an activist, as a celebrity this year, sort of grapple with that, with that frustration, that anger and that, that sorrow. And so to see it channeled through this, this real life figure in the eighties is really powerful as well. Um, so I, I loved, I loved that installment as well. Can I share a fun fact about behind the scenes of Mangrove Nine that isn't isn't really a spoiler, but it's what happened after after the movie. So you have these um these two characters, Barbara and Darkus, who are married, um, and they have a baby halfway through, and you know how I feel about uh, a mom in a movie who's getting shit done. But their son Darkus, who's also named Darkus, is uh, became a major music executive at Island Records and signed Amy Winehouse and Mumford and Sons, among others, and oh, is like still wow. like a big muckety muck in the music industry. Isn't that amazing? What a where are so they now? Cool. <laughs> I know, like that. Baby in that courtroom mm-hmm. really went somewhere. Um, well, and she she expresses so much anxiety about his future, so that's actually really. Cool I know to, that's yeah, 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 that's true. That doesn't like make yeah. up for the like gentrification of the neighborhood, but it's uh, it's great to see that his in- extremely passionate parents really uh, helped him uh, get far in life. 
Uh, I just want to shout out Alex Jennings, who plays the frustratingly awful judge um, and how great he always is in everything that he does. He was in The Crown. He was in The Queen. He just always shows up and is the best. And like even when you hate him, you're just like this guy um, is doing it. And then Jack Loudon, what I like about Mangrove is Jack Loudon plays this white Scottish lawyer who is representing one of um, – the defendant's Barbara, the aforementioned Barbara. And uh, he is helpful, but it's such an interesting reframing of the like white savior narrative that we see in like other films made by white people about black people, because like he's helpful. He gives them help. You sometimes need a white face to like help, you know, you thread the needle of this awful Byzantine system or whatever at the, at that time. But he's not centralized in the narrative by any stretch of the imagination. And he's not, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not Kevin Costner in, um, in figures <laughs> at all. And I, I, I really like that about it. I loved seeing the British, the courts, like the courtroom drama, because it's so different from American courtroom drama. Like all of the defendants are in like a little box and they like, like on a platform. They're like high yeah, up. Right. It's so strange. <laughs> and everyone's wearing these ridiculous wigs, just like balanced on top of their normal hair. And it's, it's a much more combative space. People challenge the judge like all the time. And yeah, it was very interesting to watch. Um, I do think there's going to be some really interesting think pieces comparing Mangrove 9 to Chicago 7. Um, I'm not sure if I have like the historical depth to to write either myself, but it's uh, really fascinating to think about how these trials have taken on in the imagination. Yeah. I uh, I was watching, I don't know what it was at some point, like earlier this year and tweeted like, what is the American equivalent of the wigs that British lawyers wear? Because I find them like so strange. And like a bunch a bunch of people responded. I think the closest was like the sheriff's hat, which is like wide and has the dent in the middle. Just like weird legacy fashion yeah, things that like yeah, yeah. we don't know why we still do it, but we do. Um, yeah, I love a British movie with wigs in the courtroom. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Okay, so before we share Richard's interview with Carrie Coon about The Nest, we should talk about The Nest, um, which it's been flying a a little bit under the radar. It's one of those, like, at this point, kind of outlier movies that had a long theatrical run this fall before it's now coming to VOD. So I've known about it. It premiered at Sundance earlier this year, but, like, I have not been able to go see it because I'm not going to theaters and a lot of people aren't. It's finally coming out. Joanna, you and I got the chance to see it. Um, Yes. It lived up to every bit of hype that had been given to me. I thought this movie was phenomenal. Yes. Um, this is by Sean Durkin, who did, oh, God, I always get the order Martha wrong. Martha Marcy May Marlene. Oh, nailed it. Nailed it, Katie Rich. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then what the nest, um, it's, it's uh, you know, a period story about a family and a, a remote manor house. By period, I mean, what, late, late 70s? I think 80s. Yeah. Early 80s then. Um, and it's is not a horror movie, but is a horror movie at the same time, um, which I think, you know, is a hallmark of Sean Durkin's work. And 
you know, you could see how this film could easily become one of those prestige horror films that we are all sort of gobbling up these days. But it's not, that's not what it is. But it is about the horror of like hurt people hurting people. <laughs> um, a, 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 a great central performance from Carrie Coon, as always. Like you'll hear Richard talk to her, but like, you know, when is Carrie Coon not fantastic for folks who like aren't on the Carrie Coon train uh, yet? And what are you doing? You know, she's incredible in Leftovers and Fargo and a bunch of other stuff. And she's just I think she's an actress that like every filmmaker wants to work with right now. So she's yeah. incredible. And then Jude Law doing oh, one of my favorite Jude Law things, which is just being so charming and so the worst at the same time. Like he and he and Hugh Grant are uh, on the undoing are doing very similar things with their mm. like effortlessly charming personas like masking or going hand in hand with just like disgusting abusive behavior and it's it's like like Sonia was saying about the, the second installment of Small Axe it's a vibe it's a mood it's just sort of like you're just stressed you know what I mean what did you oh, think Katie? Oh it's so stressful yeah. I mean I definitely it's like it, it, it kind of builds up to this climax and you just like you don't know what kind of movie you're watching for a long time like you said it's not a horror movie but it like it has so many of the hallmarks of it it's not like you think like an alien's gonna pop out or anything but like it just leaves you uncertain for so much of the movie and like you were saying about Jude Law like he's not just like charming which like we like you know the slick Jude Law he's been so great at it but just like it's all barely covering this like deep well of like neediness and desperation um, which is what emerges so much over the course of the movie and Carrie Coon is like they're really just like on different planets like they and you see the connection between this couple but she is just like undergoing so much like uncertainty and so like you know she's moved to Britain for her husband like she's got this horse that she loves she's got this like on the surface, great life that she's never asked any questions about. But it's not like, you know, some big like, oh, Lonely Housewife comes to a realization like it's much slower than that. Like there's all these like long camera shots of like that slowly like zoom out or zoom in on the outside of the house or from a distance. And it feels like you're spying on these people. Like it's like eavesdropping on their lives. And and it get, it gives this whole like haunted sensibility to the entire family. Yeah. Um, and. I haven't seen Martha Marcy May Marlene in a really long time. And crazily, that's the last movie Sean Durkin made, which is wild to me because that movie was such a breakout. Um, But it just has that whole unsettling, like, putting the pieces together of this story and watching these people kind of, like, get slowly pinned down by the world that they live in. It was, yeah, it was so effective for me. Um, And I just, I feel like more people should be talking about it. Someone tweeted at us last night, like, the little Goldies need to get on the Carrie Coon train and, like, let's do it. Yeah. It's starting now. Like, the best actress race, if you look at it, like, there's a lot of really talented people in there. It's not that crowded. There is so much room for Carrie Coon to finally get an Oscar nomination for this. The best actress race is so interesting. Uh, Vulture did a piece yesterday, I think. That was titled something like Amy Adams can't get her Oscar this way about hillbilly elegy, which we've already <laughs> talked about hillbilly elegy on this podcast. But like I like the Renee Zellweger Judy race was just sort of like considered a foregone conclusion in like summer of last year, basically. Yeah. And I just think that this year has so much more opportunity. I mean, there's a few foregone conclusions. I mean, everyone is just saying like pack it up everyone else Chadwick Boseman's got this sort of thing and and that's understandable but like I think there is just a lot more opportunity for a more interesting you know race than we've had in years past because you don't have these codified opinions coming out of film festivals which we've talked about before yeah and so um yeah let's do it the nest push 
Uh, and, watch and the it. fact that we cannot emphasize enough that the Oscars are at the end of April, which is, I believe, still more than six months away. So there's just like oodles of time to figure yeah. this out. Um, but yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves and let's just listen to Richard talk to Carrie Coon about The Nest. Well, I'm so happy now to be joined by our returning guest to Little Goldman, one of our favorites here and one of the stars of, I think, one of just one of the movies of the fall, uh, one of the actors of the year, Carrie Coon. Carrie, thank you for being here. Oh, Richard, that's so kind. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. I mean, I saw um, The Nest, which is what you're here to talk about today at Sundance, which feels like it was oh 10 my, years a ago. A lifetime ago. Um, and I, it was well, the second to last movie I saw at Sundance. And it was such an intense experience that I was like, I think I need to see something light just to kind of palate <laughs> cleanse. And so I went to go right. see Palm Springs with Andy Samberg and it, it did the trick. <laughs> I um, haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's fun. Okay, um, good. But yeah, the, the Nest really stuck with me and I was really happy to be able to revisit it this fall uh, for its release. So I'm curious, just to start off uh, for you, what is it that grabbed you about the project? I mean, was this something that like Sean approached, director, writer Sean Durkin approached you with or or what's your origin story with the piece? Well, I met Sean the day after Brexit, actually, at um, Mm. the Garnett sisters, house. Rose Garnett, who was one of our producers, introduced us at a brunch and he was out for the first time with his new baby. So he was very vulnerable. (laughs) So I saw Sean at his most sort of open and, you know, bleeding heart to the world with this new baby out in the world. And so we had a lovely time. And we met subsequently in a more professional capacity a couple of times as he was trying to get a few uh, films up and running, but came to find out that Rose had actually orchestrated that meeting intentionally because she knew about The Nest and she had been thinking of me for it. And so I really give her a lot of credit for um, setting us up. And I had seen Martha Marcy May Marlene, a couple of my friends, uh, Sarah Paulson and Maria Dizia had worked with Sean. So I had some, you know, some anecdotal experience about that process. And I I loved the script because I had never seen marriage, you know, dealt with in this particular way. Normally it's um, divorce or the, or a child is dead or there's infidelity. But this was really about marriage and about the tacit agreements that make up a marriage and the negotiations that have to be uh, revisited <laughs> in order to decide whether a marriage should continue. And I also felt it was a it was a genuine lead, which is not something that comes my way very often. It was a leading lady part, which is not something that comes my way very often. And and so it was really flattering to be asked. But then also it was good. (laughs) So Sean's writing is so specific and everything I needed was on the page. And then, of course, we had to go out and find somebody to do it with me who could actually get the movie made and sold. And we were lucky that Jude Jude decided to join us. And he's just um, he was really the perfect choice for Rory, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's everything feels so tailor made. I mean, it's like I can't imagine this movie without, you know, these actors Mm -hmm. and this filmmaker. And it's something that's so fascinating, partly because it's hard to classify. You know, Mm -hmm. after seeing Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is actually the first film review I ever wrote professionally. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is so we're coming full circle. But, um, is it a th- it's a thriller, I guess, but it's also a drama. And I think similarly with The Nest, there are elements that are suspenseful in their way. Mm-hmm. But then and I found something, you know, it's, it's pretty bleak for a while, but I found something almost hopeful by the end of it. What is your interpretation of, if you can, the sort of <laughs> overall mood of The Nest? What, what are you trying to communicate with it, do you think? Well, it's really, I give Sean all the credit for that genre bending quality. He's going about that very intentionally. 
he knows what about those um, horror movies, what is suspenseful and how that operates. And so the way he's woven that into the script is really artful. I mean, that's the architecture of the story. And it's a really um, useful exercise for that kind of domestic deterioration that's happening in the movie. But with along with what you said, I actually find the movie profoundly hopeful. I think we all did. <laughs> Because yeah. it reminded me a lot of what I, f- I think of as the central theme of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which people know by now was the play that sort of launched my whole uh, TV film career. The question is always, if if people let go of their illusions, can they survive? And in this marriage, if they let go of these delusions, can the marriage survive is, I think, a really interesting fundamental question. I think it's the question our country is asking itself right now. So I think thematically, actually, it's quite sound. And and like I said, I think they're actually at a they're at this precipice where they get to they get to make a choice about how to move forward. And that's not a that's not a space that was open to them at the start of the film. Um, so I find it, I don't know, both horrifying and hopeful. Yes. Yeah. And I and I think that hope I don't want to I'm not going to spoil anything for the listeners, but like it feels really hard one. Mm hmm. But, you know, you really feel like you've been through a journey with this family. And just a quick plot summary for people who aren't familiar. It's about uh, a married couple and their two children who relocate to the husband's native England, uh, where he has some sort of business scheme that really never comes to fruition, if it ever existed at all. And and it's about them struggling through that. And, you know, I think it's not a radical thing to say that we, you know, there has been a lot of sort of common struggle for people in the world and Americans, you know, Mm -hmm. as we lead up to an election and COVID and everything. In dark times like that, do you find that you're drawn to work that helps you, you know, that is similarly dark? Because I would, I think that I would imagine that sometimes you're like, I just want to do a silly comedy to forget about everything. Mm -hmm. But The Nest feels like it's really engaging with a feeling that a lot of us have had recently. Mm -hmm. Did you find that to be true? Well, it's interesting because, of course, when we made it, that was not the world we were living in. And in some ways, the world, much like it's caught up to the leftovers, (laughs) the world, unfortunately, is also (laughs) caught up to the, the isolation of The Nest. And so at the time, it was just presenting as a challenge and as a... Uh, an adventure. I was, I think Tracy was making Ford v. Ferrari and I went off to London with our baby who was about a year old, I guess. I guess Haskell was about a year old when we made it. So I was alone in England with a nanny. So I was a full-time mom when I wasn't at work and I didn't really have time (laughs) to worry about the world or what we were making. I just had to show up and trust that everything I needed was on the page. And as long as I was, you know, um, focused on what Allison wanted and what she was going to do to get it, then then we were going to make the movie. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is fascinating to me that uh, I don't know what the current conditions will do for people's appetite for the movie. But if they choose to watch it, I think everyone will find a way into it in a way maybe they wouldn't have six months ago if they couldn't relate to the domestic you know, situation. Um, they can certainly relate to, <laughs> to the isolation or their houses becoming a, <laughs> a prison or a dungeon yeah. or an, an incubator for all of the worst aspects of their relationship. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's it's a maybe a trite thing to say, but, you know, the house really does feel in some sense like a character. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is this kind of consuming thing that could be lovely if attended to the right way, but instead becomes this kind of gloomy prison. Uh, <laughs> yes. But but cutting through that gloom on occasion in a, in a kind of fun cinematic way is there are moments where Allison is kind of fabulous. 
and she gets to wear a great outfit and say some really kicky lines. And I mean, thinking in particular of a scene where you and Jude Law's character are at dinner mm-hmm. uh, and Allison has just had it. And yeah. uh, she just decides to kind of play her husband's con game against him, you know, in this moment at this restaurant. Yes. Um, how did you balance a, like a kind of zingy scene like that with so much of the other stuff that's maybe heavier uh, mm-hmm. in the rest of the film. Well, what the funny thing about characters is they don't know that they're in a drama or in a zingy scene. <laughs> so, right. so they get to just be people in the world. And what what was delightful about the process is that Jude Jude has spoken often about the trust, the feeling of trust that was that existed on set. Sean trusts his actors, which is very um, is, is a real confidence booster when you're on a set. And everybody so clearly trusted Sean and Matthias. They just had they had created a, a, a film set that was very respectful. And everybody who was an artist was their point of view was welcomed and encouraged. So our costume designer, Matt Price, Emma Scott, who did our hair and makeup. I mean, they were all very much a part of that collaboration. Sean's really, really good at fostering that feeling. So there was so much goodwill and there was so much organic chemistry in the cast. Sean had been so intentional about casting Charlie and Una. He'd taken his time to find the the kids. And unfortunately, some of the scenes that they're, they're in were cut. You know, once you get the get all the footage, you, you sort of focus a film and oftentimes, you know, scenes get lost. And unfortunately, a lot of that work was Charlie's and Una's. And I really wish people could see it because they, they so thoroughly inhabit those kids. And ultimately, it felt like we were making a play because, of course, it's an independent film. So there's this time pressure on those mm-hmm. films. But it was so joyful in, in the detail and. Like you point out, like the costumes in that set. I mean, it was the first time I really felt fabulous. <laughs> it really felt, <laughs> you know, it's important for someone like me, an actor who's not often invited to play a leading lady part, to feel that I'm, I'm, that I deserve to be there, <laughs> with, with Jude Law and uh, you know Justin Thoreau and Paul Rudd. It's it's kind of unusual for me to find myself in these situations, and so I'm so grateful for the artists that created that atmosphere, and. Um, you know, Sean's, Sean's films are really complex. And mm-hmm. so those characters are really complex. So they, they're not consistent. You know, Allison's not consistent. She's, um, you know, she's kind of, she sort of still wants to be enrolled in Rory's fantasy at the same time she's questioning it, which is not an easy, but we're all doing that in our, in our relationships. That's what feels really truthful about it to me is that lack of consistency in her. And those are just fun scenes to play. <laughs> That's just a lot of fun to do. Yeah, because they're even though Jude Law's character is you know kind of shifty and 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 hard to rely on, both he and Allison are very smart, and mm-hmm. uh, they're aware of that. There, there's not a lot of pretense, at least in that fact. And so, what I think is so refreshing about the movie is that they are ultimately honest with each other. They're honest mm-hmm. about the kind of compromises and bargains of a marriage, about having a family, right. about finances. And and so that's why I feel like toward the end, and again without spoiling anything, this kind of thing something lifts and there's a there's a freedom, as ruined as their current circumstances might be, mm-hmm. uh, they're able to at least see each other and be like, well, maybe this is enough, the four of us, you know. And I think Sean did a really incredible thing when he wrote it in that those scenes they give you a glimmer into a history. There's a mm-hmm. there's a deftness about how he's done that where I feel that I hope the audience gets a sense that this was a marriage they were well matched and that Allison and Rory were a really good time they were that couple that you wanted to spend time with 
And, you know, their domestic responsibilities have taken them away from whatever those younger, more gregarious days were, but they're still able to kind of tap back into it in a way that feels like, um, you know, when a really, really solid relationship uh, starts off and the baseline is really easy and good and fun, at least you have that to return to when things start to get bad. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, that there's a real sense in the movie that 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 history exists. And I, I think Sean's done a really beautiful job of, of capturing that in a, in a really non-traditional way. It's not like through a lot of exposition, you know, there's just a lot of clues. In fact, I think he really trusts his audience to put the pieces together. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it is that you, you feel like they're real people, but you're, they're not telling you who they are. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the, one of the kind of interesting details about Allison is her passion seems to be sort of horse training and, and mm -hmm. horse riding. And, that I would imagine as an actor, how familiar were you with working with horses? I mean, was that something you had to teach yourself for this film? It was. And I, I had grown up in a pretty rural area, but there were some, you know, some old quarter horses across the street. We'd ride around a paddock, but that is not equestrian training. <laughs> That's a really different thing. And so we it was a really important element for Sean because he grew up with it. His mother trained horses, as did his sister, and he actually used to tape his mother's lessons. So that quality was really, really important. And it was important to him that I spend time with people who trained horses. And in fact, I trained in New York, in Toronto, and then ultimately with the Devil's Horseman in the the UK. And it was so instructive because it, it's, it's fascinating. You can't lie on a horse. That's what all the trainers would say it. They'd find some way to say that to me. You can't lie. And the horses feel everything in your body. So any fear or anxiety or insecurity you feel goes right into them and then they're off. Either they're taking over or they're looking for somebody else to lead them because they're pack mm -hmm. animals. And so you have to sort of marshal all of that and be very present and very calm. And that really taught me a lot about who Allison was. And of course, it's the dynamic in the film. She's very earthy. She's very grounded. She's very direct. And Rory is the dreamer who's, who's spinning this fantasy that they all would love to live in. And in fact, was probably the most attractive thing about him to her is that he sort of pulled her out of this world and, and sort of was able to spin this these possibilities. And of course, that's very sexy. That's very engaging. But she's the one then who always has to kind of bring him down to earth and remind him of the those, um, you know, very real responsibilities <laughs> that will make or break those dreams. And and working with the horses was so, it's, it was such good training for that. I mean, you, you have to be really present. And that's a wonderful place to start a scene from. And it's just a lot of fun to do. I mean, I just got to go out to the English countryside on the weekends and ride around in this gorgeous you know, area and, and work with these, these the consummate professionals. I mean, Devil's Horsemen, they did all the horse training for The Crown and for um, Game of Thrones. And in fact, you know, I'm riding Jon Snow's horse, uh, Tornado. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. He's more famous than me. Uh, <laughs> and um, and he's, he's such an actor. I mean, that horse, as soon as the camera rolls, that horse turns it on. And they, they um, all they have to do is show those horses their marks once and they just will hit them every time. So they're like the most ideal acting partner in so many ways. They really make you look good. You know, I also am curious, you know, because it's such a personal film for Sean, but then you've got come and, and, and helped make it. And so it becomes a personal thing for you. What was it like when you got to be able to show people this film, you know, friends, loved ones? Uh, uh, what was the response that you've gotten so far to The Nest? That's a really great question. You know, a lot of people haven't seen it yet because 
Uh, it hasn't come out on, it's coming out on demand in November, of course. And so I had a, we had a small digital premiere. So some of my family got to see it, but most of them had to watch it on an iPad. (laughs) This Mm. is one of the obstacles to this uncertain time we're in is how to make these premieres uh, available to people. And unfortunately, the technology doesn't always support it because a film like this with Matthias's, um, you know, Matthias Erdely is our DP and, and it's really a, it's it's really a film that's meant to be seen in a theater <laughs> for many reasons. You know, you it's it feels like a U- European auteur director's film from the 70s the way that it's shot. And so it's a real shame that people didn't get to see it the way it was meant to be seen. However, I would say most of the journalists I speak to talk about the things you were speaking to earlier about the themes sort of really reflecting the world we're in. Mm-hmm. My friends who are loving and supportive were just very excited to see me get to take on a leading part like this and we're excited sort of vicariously living through me, (laughs) you know, that possibility. And interestingly, uh, like my parents, for example, my dad said, Oh, I just, I couldn't relate to that marriage, which I find really fascinating because one of the reasons I related to the film was because I thought my parents, I think of my parents as having a very egalitarian marriage for the time that they, they were married, which of course is this time. You know, my my parents were they both worked, but my dad took on a lot of the domestic responsibilities. My mother always made more money than my dad. So I found that they they were very unusual in the, when I was growing up in the Midwest. And so I thought it was interesting that he actually kind of found found the marriage like that. They he just thought there was no chance they were going to survive it, you know, yeah. um, which is uh, it's interesting because much like the leftovers or Fargo, I end up doing these these uh, projects with arbitrary endings that reflect more about the people's lives that are watching it than than the actual art itself. You know, it says so much about you if you think Nora Durst is lying in the leftovers or if you think the good guys or the bad guys win in season three of Fargo. And it's the same thing about this marriage. I mean, some people say, oh, they're just, you know, they were never going to make it. And other mm-hmm. people say, like you, I think it's really hopeful. And I, I've been very curious to see how split the response has been. Yeah, that reminds <laughs> me of uh, a friend of mine years ago when, when the show Girls premiered, she watched the first couple episodes and said, oh, I don't like it. That Hannah, she's so she's so awful. She's so unrelatable. And, and all of her friends were thinking, but she's you. <laughs> like, don't you see? <laughs> right. And she right. didn't. <laughs> right. Um you brought up, you know, how people are watching things now in, in, in this, you know, very strange year of ours. I'm curious to whatever extent you want to share, like what has your kind of experience since March been? I mean, have you just really been home watching things and, you know, being a, a little family unit or, or how how has quarantine treated you? Well, I was in the middle of doing Bug at Steppenwolf. Uh, which is oh. my husband's play. We were doing it for the first time at Steppenwolf with great actor, uh, Namir Smallwood, who's in our company. And we were having a great time, though it's probably the hardest play I've ever done. So I was exhausted. And Tracy was in New York putting up the minutes on Broadway. So I was actually a single mom and doing this play, which was really exhausting. So in some ways, <laughs> I was not entirely <laughs> disappointed when our last week I got off. I mean, not really. Of course, we wanted to finish. It was devastating. But what was remarkable is that then when Broadway shut down, um, which was really spearheaded by Tracy's producer because they had cast members in their 70s and it was feeling really dangerous, Tracy made it home for our son's second birthday. He got in a car and drove home. And then we were supposed to be apart for most of the spring. And in fact, we were together. So first of all, it was a gift that you know my son had two parents again. And then it was also a gift because we've been working really hard 
And Tracy has this magnificent DVD collection. So we started watching a movie every night. We saw over 200 movies during the pandemic. So we have this weird stacks. We have these stacks of DVDs in the basement that are like the bar graph of our quarantine. And I started tweeting out our quarantine movies. So that was fun. And and so we and that's all Tracy wants to do is we're not allowed to watch TV when we're home because he has a 4K projector and we're only allowed to watch Blu-rays when we're there from all over the world. <laughs> so now that we're in New York for work, we're actually watching television again. But then, of course, in addition to that, then you had the, the Black Lives Matter movement really taking center stage during the pandemic. And that was a really important moment for us um, because we live in Chicago, which is um, has an historically... Uh, problematic police department. We've had multiple incidents and protests. We've had um, millions of dollars paid out in um, settlements with families who've been uh, wronged uh, by the police department. So that's certainly an issue that's front and center in our community and in our theater company. This is a, you know, the question of institutional racism is one that even the most liberal (laughs) theater company has to reckon with. And so we've been engaged in that process with our theater And that's been, I think, really fruitful. Um, Of course, no one's making theater right now, and a lot of people are really hurting. So there's also then a lot of our friends who are struggling. Um, The community is really struggling. And I would say most of my friends, if not, I mean, almost all of my friends are unemployed right now, and doubly so because a lot of them work in restaurants or they work in other service industries that haven't been, that have been really wiped out. And so there's a lot of pain yeah. So in addition to being comfortable, just we recognized a lot how fortunate we were to have a, a, a house and money and food and a healthy child. And so we had a lot of gratitude. But, um, you know, we, we were really reckoning with what our what our role is to play in this moment. And for my husband, you know, his play was his political moment, his political statement. It's a very political piece. And it didn't get to move forward before the election. And, and that was really hard for Tracy because, you know, that's his role. And yeah. um, so that was really hard. I got to see it in previews, which I was oh. glad that I, I saw it right well, before. Thank you. Thank you for seeing shut it. Down. Yeah, no, I, it, and it, you know, hopefully it'll live another life someday down so. the road. Um, you know, how, I mean, you, you and your husband are both such admirably dedicated to the theater, even while working in TV and film. Um, how are you feeling about what's the prognosis from your end? I mean, because mm-hmm. I have friends in New York here who work in theater and, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are still working in their administrative jobs. Um, some are, you know, clearly been out of work for months. And and I, I would say the mood has gotten a bit grim here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but from grim. your view, I mean, is there a spring for theater? Is it next summer? Is it fall? I mean, do you have any sense of that or what are people I think talking about? We won't. I think if um, if the election, if the election mm-hmm. outcome is one that is supportive of the arts, and I think we all know which one that is, there's a possibility Broadway would be back in a year, maybe by next fall. But of course, so much depends on <laughs> yeah. how long yeah. it takes us to write this ship. Um, and in the meantime, we live in a country where there isn't a lot of government support for the arts. And in fact, the, you know, the Republicans have now moved to start to defund PBS again, which you know, fortunately, um, there have been a lot of Republican Congress people who have actually moved to uh, secure the funding for those for the you know PBS, the public broadcasting system for radio and public television and, and the News Hour, and now that that mood is shifting because of some dubious reasons. But um, so it's really existential right now, and and they've you know the, the Trump administration every year has defunded the arts. I mean, they've ta- they've cut slashed the budget for museums. I mean, it's not just the theater. So we're, it's really dire. And we're the, one of the only countries where that's the case. You know, my acting friends in Europe can't believe the way that actors live here. 
they can't believe we have to do eight shows a week because <laughs> most of them are working in rep. So um, it's it's bad. And most of the theater companies aren't going to make it because they rely on ticket sales for their budget because there is no government subsidy. You know, they have to just apply for grants yeah. every minute. And so it's bad. And But, you know, the nice thing about the arts, the great thing about the arts is that they never go away. So, of course, what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to rise from the ashes and it's going to be a new it's going to be a new movement. And there's going to be young theater companies. There's going to be vitality. There's going to be diversity in a way we've never seen. And and it's going to be um, really invigorating. But it's going to take a long time before that starts. Yeah. And in terms of things starting up again, uh, I know you're back in production on a television show um, mm-hmm. in New York, and I'm curious what that experience has been like because, you know, it's probably <laughs> scary. I would imagine because yeah. you know, and you want obviously it's not just actors on, on in front of the camera; it's crew and and everything. In your experience, how has that been mitigated? I mean, how, has it how has it been managed? I just started. I, I actually just started shooting this week. So I've been engaged mostly in pre-production, though they have been in production longer than I've been around. They started a couple of weeks ago. So it was scary. You know, my husband's 55 years old. <laughs> He's in a very vulnerable group and he does not want to get the coronavirus, mm-hmm. <laughs> nor do I want him. And I do not want to be the person that brings it home to him because I'm going to make a television show. It's not worth dying over. At the same time, I recognize how few people actually have a job right now and how vital it is that that people in every department get to go back to work because everyone's supporting families. And and so I'm grateful that it's starting up. And I feel that uh, I'm working for HBO right now and Sony. And I think that they're being really responsible. I feel like the communication has been very clear and explicit about what measures they're taking. And I have to say, I think, you know, we're one of the first productions back in New York. And I do feel that they're trying to be leaders in the industry about how to make this work. There have been some productions in LA that I think are going pretty well. I actually did some reshoots out there for Ghostbusters and um, Sony's, the Sony lot's been working for a while and, and they haven't had an outbreak. So that was comforting. It's just, it's interesting because while we have, we actually have a really adaptable industry that's been doing the same things for a really long time. So we're, we're, we're at once very set in our ways and at once very adaptable because it's a business that's always, you know, the, the schedule is always changing locations and rain plans. So in some ways, we're the best industry to, to try on these new protocols. And, you know, I get tested every day that I work. Uh, everybody wears PPE. They've divided the, the crew into zones. So green zone crew members are the ones that interact with um, actors who are maskless. And then and so that way, if we have an outbreak, they would be able to hopefully, you know, contact trace very easily and just isolate the parts of production that are exposed. Everyone's wearing masks and shields when we're on set. Um, there's there's hand sanitizer everywhere. And that's, you know, so far it's going well. And so far it I, I was surprised to feel like it, it felt pretty normal. Aside from having to rehearse with a mask on, you know, you're in this magnificent dress because I'm doing a period piece and then everyone's wearing masks. I think it's I think it's really exhausting for the crew. Uh, to wear those masks and shields all day when they're hauling equipment and sticking their face in cameras and, you know, they're on their feet all day. It's it's really hard. And the hours of already, were already punishing. I mean, we, we did we did a 16 hour day this week. And so it's a huge adjustment. And I think um, but I think everyone's really game because they want to be back to work. Yeah. So yeah. so far, so good. I mean, so far, I'm feeling I'm feeling safe. Well, that's really good to hear. And, you know, I think selfishly, uh, it's nice to know that things are being made and that, that, we'll, that we'll get to watch and enjoy next year, because I think there had been 
a real fear that there was going to be just kind of this desert yeah. uh, awaiting We've us. We've watched everything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, in case people haven't yet watched it, I guess, well, it'll be on demand soon on the 17th, I believe. The Nest is terrific and Carrie, you're so good in it. And it's, thank you. Um, I think, one of the special movies to come out this year. Um, and thank you, for Carrie, for taking your time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I just had a call. I just had a press call with Jude and he was talking about how important it is that, you know, how important the critics voices are and that we maybe we have an opportunity in this moment to remember that films need that kind of support and that you all are really important. And maybe we get a chance to remake the system now that it's in pieces <laughs> and that those voices get to be heard again, that it doesn't have to be about box office anymore, that it can be about other things, too. So thank you for your work. We really yeah. appreciate it. I look forward to that <laughs> that that shiny new feature. Um, in the meantime, uh, stay safe and uh, happy shooting, and we'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks, Richard. So that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Um, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find so many articles from Julie Miller, the best in the business, about The Crown, um, and also Sonia's review of The Crown. Uh, Joanna, anything that you want to plug that you have been writing about? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of deep in Mando territory, so we've got a couple Mandalorian stuff coming up this week. Quick uh, hot take, is uh, Baby Yoda canceled? Uh, <laughs> I am uncanceling Baby Yoda. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> I'm so glad we gave you that authority. He um, just likes caviar. Yeah, come on. <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Sonia. Sonia Soraya. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our pandemic hair goes to Joanna Robinson. Greasy bowl cut. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.